engineers can build applications faster by using tools that abstract away infrastructure. Major cloud providers offer this tooling in the form of functions as a service, as well as managed services such as Google BigQuery or Azure Container Instances. The term serverless refers to these two types of serverless ideas. You have functions as a service, which are very flexible ways of deploying blobs of code, and you have managed services, like BigQuery that I mentioned earlier. And when you use these tools, they are serverless because you're not making calls to specific servers. You're making calls to APIs that abstract away the servers from you while guaranteeing uptime and reliability and scalability. In previous shows, we've covered things like Heroku and Firebase and serverless functions and serverless event-driven application development and a few startups that are built almost entirely on serverless infrastructure. This topic is endlessly fascinating. Serverless is a way of describing these back-end services that are represented by an API instead of using the addressable server notion. But what about the rest of the application stack that you use to build on top of this serverless back-end concept? You still need to use JavaScript to define the custom code of your application. You still need to use HTML markup to describe the look and feel of your application. The Jam stack is a way of building applications consisting of JavaScript, APIs, and markup. Phil Hawksworth is the head of developer relations at Netlify, and he joins the podcast to explain how these Jamstack applications are developed and deployed, and how developers can use the Jamstack to rapidly build new systems. We also spend some time talking about Netlify, which is a fascinating company, and certainly one of the companies for high-productivity developers to watch closely and consider for their own projects. I hope you like this episode. It was pretty enlightening for me. Phil Hawksworth, you are the head of developer relations at Netlify. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. I want to talk to you today about the Jam stack, which is one of these terms that's used to describe a collection of developer tools and patterns that people use. There are examples of this in the past, like the mean architecture or the the lamp stack. Right. So the jam stack is a newer piece along that lineage. What is the jam stack? Oh, that's that's a, a great place to start. Yeah. It, on first glance, it does sound like a bit of a buzzword. And I know that our industry is kind of full of terms like this. And you, you know, you called out a couple there, but Jamstack is, so the jam in Jamstacks, the J-A-M is JavaScript, APIs, and markup. And it, and really it's trying to describe you know, pretty much, as you said, like, a, like a, a way of approaching development, a set of tools and processes that allow you to build sites in a slightly different way to maybe has been, been popular uh, more recently. It's, it's almost like the operating system has moved a tiny bit closer to the user in in the browser. So, you know, really this is talking about building sites in a way where we pre-render content with with markup so the content is there. Maybe we enrich that at the time at build time with access to APIs. 
or we maybe call those APIs directly from the browser client side using JavaScript. So, you know, in this way that JavaScript has kind of become the runtime of the web, you can start to bring, you know, the stack much closer to the user. So Jamstack is intended to talk about that. And you could also argue that it's a bit of a convenience term to to really get past some of the hangups that you might might encounter when you're describing static sites. You know, I often talk about static sites and the Jamstack as, you know, two sides of the same coin. But static sites, you know, when you hear that term, you immediately think about the experience being static. But actually, it's, you know, we're talking a little bit more about things that can be hosted on static hosting infrastructure or, or direct from a CDN. And that's a real virtue. But people kind of think about that as something that can only be experienced statically. But if you think about it slightly differently, you talk about the Jamstack, which you know, it's, it's JavaScript, which could be served statically, but could be used very dynamically direct from, a, from the client. And then using things like APIs and, of course, sitting on top of the markup, that paints an entirely different picture of what you can create. And I think that's, that's where you know, a lot of the, the kind of sites and projects that I work on, that's the direction they're going in. So I hope that, hope that answers the, the question. It's a long que- answer to a short question. Well, that term static site, I think it originated when people started serving, well, maybe it didn't originate, but the the first time I heard the term static site was the idea that you could serve a website out of an S3 bucket, for example. Yeah. And it's simultaneously amazing because, oh, I've got this S3 bucket I'm just using for storage and, whoa, I can actually serve an entire website mm-hmm. out of it. And that's pretty nice, you know, because setting up a an entire website is sometimes annoying or it's historically been annoying. Sure. But it was, of course, quite limiting because you just had routes pointing to assets that were s- sitting around in your storage bucket, your S3 bucket or your yeah. Azure blob storage bucket. Right. But static sites or the notion of static sites is kind of a fuzzy term. Can you unpack that a little bit more? What do people mean when they say static website? That's another good question because, yeah, what do people mean indeed? I know what I what I mean when I talk about a static site is a site that is capable of being served from you know, simple web hosting infrastructure. So being served directly from a CDN. I mean, you've already called out S3 is a perfect example. You know, it's it's super convenient and kind of low maintenance for you as a site maintainer to, you know, just throw your assets onto S3 and then they'll get served. Fabulous. You're not having to maintain a server that has logic running it that you've got to keep, you know, patched with security updates and all of those kind of things. So there's a real virtue to being able to to be capable of being served in that way. But as you say, it does seem just a little bit limiting because it's, you know, you're just serving dumb assets. So I think, you know, a lot of times that is a hang up that we that we kind of have and that's a that's a bit of a, a hangover if you like of uh, of the way that we've we've looked at uh, hosting infrastructure in particular. So I think a lot of people do think of static sites as being a brochure, you know, a resume something very, very simple. But actually, you know, a static site can actually become much more dynamic in behavior if you're able to lower things like the friction to deploying updates and the way that uh, you can interact and, and those kind of things. So, you know, a typical dynamic site that you might think of could be a blog. You know, you you think of like the, the biggest, most popular blogging infrastructure there is, something like WordPress, which of course runs on PHP and has a dynamic backend because it's hitting a database and all of those kind of things. But really the content that you create on a blog, I don't know if I would necessarily describe that as dynamic in its 
behavior is the kind of thing that's written infrequently and read very, very frequently. So do you need to be hitting a database for every request is kind of the question there. And and my position is is to say, no, you don't need to do that. If you can pre-render that and then have the all of the views rendered and on a CDN for people to hit, that's great because that can be served statically. It's capable of being served statically. It means it's going to perform much better. There's fewer security kind of attack vectors and all of those kind of things that go along with that in terms of the complexity of the infrastructure. So I always like to think about putting as much distance as possible between the the end user and the complexity of the background. So if you if the complexity happens at build time instead of a request time, that's kind of desirable. So that's what I think of when I think of a static site, something where the cogs aren't turning at the time that the request happens. But that's not to say that you couldn't have, you know, lots of cogs turning and all kinds of complexity at build time. And I think the tooling is getting better now to, to make that much lower friction and easier to easier to do complex things in that space. The thing you said there that stuck out to me was these websites are written infrequently, but perhaps read frequently. So I think mm. about my own website, softwareengineeringdaily.com. We publish a podcast episode every day. We may might publish an article or two per day as well. Mm-hmm. That's not a whole lot of rights. It's just three changes to the website. Right. It's not a big deal. And that might fall under the rubric of static websites. Now, we do have some more dynamic content. So we've had contents or a uh, comments plugin in mm-hmm. the past that we don't anymore but when we had that comments plugin the commenting system was actually handled by a third-party api provider it was handled by discuss and so sure yep. this makes me think that you often see these these apps where like you said most of it is read often write infrequently, maybe you write two or three times a day, but maybe you have isolated components of the website that are perhaps write intensive, like a commenting system, but the commenting system you can get handled by a third-party provider. And this, to me, seems like one of the beauties of our modern infrastructure that is encapsulated in the idea of the Jamstack, JavaScript. Was it JavaScript APIs markup? Is that right? That's exactly it, yeah. Right, so APIs bevy of APIs that are available to people, whether you talk about Stripe or Discuss Mm -hmm. or name your API in the ever-expanding grocery list of APIs, that's where you can get your dynamism. And of course, they take care of the distribution and the write or read intensity, they naturally scale up to handle those things. Yeah, that's just exactly the point. It's hard to be an expert in all of those things. You know, I, my background was originally in in web development, particularly front-end development. And I think the more time I spent in that role, the more I realized that there was just this huge bevy of things that I I didn't understand about web development. You know, it's hard to be a very good front-end developer and a very good, you know, DBA or DevOps person. You know, there's a lot to take on. So I really like this notion of handing off some of the complexity and things that are either commoditized or very, very complex to other services that specialize in it. I mean, you, you mentioned Discuss as a great example for comments and also Stripe as a great example for kind of payments and e-commerce. That's complex stuff to do yourself. And if there are services that you can leverage, then I think there's great advantages to do that. Now, I'd, 
I would just kind of offer a slight counterpoint as well that you need to be a tiny bit cautious about what kind of experience that's going to create for you. It used to be that you might just drop in like a JavaScript plugin and that would create the entire experience for you and you you got what you got, particularly with things like e-commerce and kind of payments uh, journeys. And I think, you know, it's, it's important to us as people who are, you know, publishing things for a brand, trying to create a brand identity and experience to have that control where possible. And that's where it's it's really nice, I think, now that the wealth of APIs that exist and the wealth of services that exist now that allow you to tailor your own experience on top of their infrastructure and on top of their APIs, it just unlocks all of these great possibilities. So I think we're seeing more and more examples of, of that out in the wild now. And I think that's what makes it kind of an exciting time. And I think we're in a place right now where we have yet to see any gigantic scale Jamstack style apps. I mean, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it is mostly today used for more narrow kind of contenty websites. There's less of a dynamic community. There's no social networks built on the Jamstack, I don't think. What's the most complex app you have seen? And by the way, that's not to say that we won't see these things proliferate. Mm. I think we will. But what's the most complex Jamstack app you've seen? Well, I could take the easy way out and talk about Netlify itself because um, Netlify is a Jamstack app. You know, the entire thing, we we very much, you know, live and breathe the model we talk about. You know, Netlify is a service that does this kind of this this type of hosting and this type of infrastructure but also you know there's there's a fairly complex admin interface so anyone who hosts a site there you know they can add a site connect it to their git repository do various configurations there see all of the deploys that have happened roll forward and back and it's it's a fairly complex admin console on there that's a react app and that is sitting on top of a Jamstack architecture. You know, this is JavaScript, which is bundled at build time, is served from a CDN, uh, and is hitting APIs in the background. That's pretty complex. That's pretty rich. It's the kind of thing that you would maybe not typically have thought you would you would serve uh, as a quote unquote static site. But that's certainly what we do. And you know, it's kind of a nice kind of side effect from that, or one of the benefits from that is that you know, since every deployment that has happened is just a bunch of static assets that live out on a CDN, it means that we can step back and forward through time for previous deploys because they're, they're all like these immutable atomic deploys. It's a bunch of assets that just lives out on a CDN that's talking to our APIs. So in fact, you know, on the my first week at Netlify, we had a, a meeting where we were, it was like an all-hands meeting. And there was a nice moment where we we're kind of just doing a bit of a retrospective of where Netlify had come from. And, uh, you know, one of the team members showed the, the Netlify admin console as it is today as it was six months ago as it was a year ago and the way that he did that was he he rolled he just showed a different version of the site deployed just stepping back through different versions of the admin ui deployed because it's just a just a bunch of you know dumb static assets but really you know that's still talking to the same apis in the background so it's still usable and, and workable that's a very extreme example of that because you wouldn't necessarily roll back your your app a year at a time. But knowing that you can roll back any deploy instantly 
for something that you've just updated, that's incredibly liberating. So th- this is an example of you know of a very complex admin UI that's built on the Jamstack. But you know, as I say, that's kind of maybe taking the easy way out and talking about something so, something very close to home. But uh, another good example, and we, we we do use this reference you know quite often, is Smashing Magazine. So I don't know if you're familiar or your listeners are familiar with Smashing Magazine, but a very large uh, publishing site, you know, specialising web development uh, content. But you know, that's a site that was once hosted across a you know a whole host of different services there was wordpress there was a cms there was a, a shop uh, a custom shop on another platform there's a job board there, these were all on different platforms and they moved across to the jamstack we did a bit of a project with them to to do that and you know that's a yes it's a very big publishing site that has lots of uh, content posted but it also has comments it also has e-commerce ticketing still a job board this is all on the jamstack as well and actually it's the kind of thing that you would you would absolutely not associate with you know the this notion of a static site it's all possible and these kind of apis that enable that are are out there now and they're getting more and more traction and those are becoming more readily available so as you said a moment ago i think the examples that we're going to start to see they're going to get more and more prolific and more and more advanced and i think they're going to really start to prove out that yes the a blog is a very obvious place to go with this but it's far from the limits it's you can really you can really apply this to to pretty much to to most of the things that you might be able to imagine right well i think even i think about something like netflix or Hmm. something yeah like netflix i think is actually a good example so there's a a company a fairly new company called mux and i've they're a sponsor they've been a a sponsor of the show in the past and I've had them on the show a couple times. They're really interesting to me because they take care of video hosting and delivery and easy embedding of video, and it's all through an API, and it's a very simple API. And I think it's an API that fewer developers know about than they should because I think a lot of developers are afraid to build applications that heavily involve video, like video sharing apps, for example. They just assume it's it's really hard and complicated, but that's an example of something that's that's becoming easier. I know AWS also has some APIs around making video a lot easier, but you know, you can imagine a, a very rich serverless Netflix style thing, or I think a machine learning heavy, data heavy app somebody might be afraid to build a static site or an infrastructure involving that kind of thing. But we just did a show a while ago with a, a company that's a, a real estate machine learning company. This is one of the most interesting shows I, I have uh, had the pleasure to do recently about this company that, that just runs large, large-scale machine learning stuff around housing and real estate. And they've got an infrastructure that's you know, mostly serverless. And I see the serverless stuff as kind of the same thing as the Jamstack. You have uh, maybe a, you know, an admin panel kind of thing or a dashboard kind of thing. It is framed in a, a static site kind of Jamstack UI layer, 
but the dynamism of the app might be described more in terms of the serverless parlance. So these are sort of two sides of the same coin. Maybe Jamstack is the front end, serverless is the back end. That's a really good way of putting it. And certainly we think, I mean, I know that serverless is such a kind of contentious (laughs) term. I know that people kind of respond to it quite viscerally saying, well, there's still servers and absolutely there's still servers, but it's not a server you ever need to concern yourself with. It's a server that you're never going to touch that infrastructure and you don't need to even think about it in those terms. But we we certainly see uh, at Netlify, we certainly think that serverless is a great companion to the Jamstack. It's a great way of extending the capabilities and extending the, the kind of power of a site that's hosted as a set of static assets. One of the things that, that we're particularly excited about actually is is building things out so that you know for some routes on a on a website that you absolutely can't pre-render that at build time. You know, you need to have some kind of call to an API that's maybe that involves secrets that you can't send through the client or maybe that performs a tiny bit of logic at request time. Serverless functions are a great way of doing that. If you can just identify the few routes on your on your experience that need that augmenting a Jamstack site with these these serverless functions is a fantastic way of getting that logic at request time that you don't really want to have to build and maintain and secure an entire you know server infrastructure for. So yes, yeah, certainly they're kind of a, a good marriage, those two. What are some of the best practices of the Jamstack? It's such a broad thing, but you know, I've been building things for the web for a long time and I'm you know you might kind of describe me as a bit of a web hippie and I'm although I'm kind of pushing something that's got the word javascript at the very beginning of it I'm always a little bit cautious about bundling everything into javascript and leaving everything just to javascript so one of the best practices I would say is pre-rendering as much as you possibly can it's great to use progressive enhancement to augment these things but wherever possible having you know the highest possible watermark for where you start from where you start to progressively enhance from that's just really good practice it's good not just for things like performance you know the, the speed of uh, of the the render for the user but just also in in terms of uh, making sure that uh, as much content is delivered as quickly as possible and you've got a, a really kind of robust starting point now there are lots of types of sites that you know could be described as Jamstack that don't need any JavaScript augmentation in the front end. You know, it's purely pre-rendered. But there's also lots that that do do require that and do benefit from that. But I would say pre-rendering as much as possible, and then using progressive enhancement to then add those other layers. You know, that's good practice for every kind of site, and that's that extends to the Jamstack as well. Another thing that I think is probably worth worth calling out is a really nice pattern for using static site generation and, and using the Jamstack, and that is in harvesting content from lots of different APIs or you know the appropriate APIs at build time. So often there's this nice pattern of a static site generator that's run in in a local build environment in a build step, and having the first thing that it does to say, okay, well I'm going to go and get the content I need from. For example, the Twitter API, my my content API from maybe a headless CMS, maybe a pricing engine. I'll get that data, gather it together. Then I'll run my static site generator and create this deployable asset. And then that gets published out uh, onto, the, onto the CDN. So having that kind of multiple step of gather the assets, generate the site, perform the optimizations and deploy, that's a really kind of nice, nice pattern as a place to start from. 
when I describe it that way, it sounds like, well, you're doing quite a lot, but that's where build automation and some of the tools like Netlify um, really come into their own because that's where we can use kind of scripting and automation to make these these processes repeatable and very easy to perform you know, many, many more times than you might traditionally think about doing de- a deployment. Just as by way of a kind of ridiculous example, I know you asked me about best practice and I'm about to give you a ridiculous example. So this wasn't necessarily best practice, but this illustrates the growing confidence in how frequently you could perhaps run a deployment. I I responded to a slight challenge on Twitter recently where someone uh, suggested, well, you know, here's an idea for you. How about a, a, a static site hosted on Netlify that redeploys every minute to tell you the lo- the, the current time, you know, building building a statically statically generated clock. So I made that, and actually it works beautifully. And of course, that's a ridiculous example, you know, a site that regenerates and redeploys every minute to tell you the correct time. But it was just this demonstration that the 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 confidence in doing a deployment and the friction to do a deployment is reduced, and the confidence has gone up through the roof. So it means that you can start to have these these build processes where you know you're doing quite a lot, but you're you're happy to do it frequently. So that's kind of a silly example. But yeah, I think going back to your original question, pre-rendering as much as possible, using progressive enhancement, those are real kind of key key lookouts, I would say. So for people who want to build with more dynamism, they'll get to a point where they need some third-party API, some uh, their stripes or the discuss or other APIs. And there's been a rise of some API marketplaces. So there's Rapid API, there's Manifold, there's some other places where you can find large collections of APIs. Do API marketplaces fit into any of the workflows that you've seen with Jamstack developers? I'm not sure if I'd say they fit in with the workflows. I think they're, they're fantastic resources. I think finding the right services and finding the right APIs that you can leverage is, of course, a big step to architecting any sites, but particularly Jamstack sites. I don't know if I would describe it as a key part of the the workflow, but yeah, certainly it's, it's an important resource. Also, you know, having the opportunity to... Um, assess those APIs and assess uh, the capabilities of the the services that are providing them is another important step you know making sh- you know feeling confident that the services that you're building on top of are going to exist for you know long enough for you to use them that's always been uh, a consideration when you're you know architecting any kind of site that's going to leverage a third party service and that's that's just as much the case on the jamstack but as you mentioned you know these kind of marketplaces are starting to evolve and the the kind of api economy if you if you like feels like it's getting more mature and more established as a viable uh, business for these for these API providers to to exist in. So I think confidence is is just generally growing across the board for those those kind of things and uh yeah things like those those API marketplaces are are a big help for that. You work at Netlify. I want to get into what Netlify is. Netlify started by being widely known as a static site hosting company, but just as static site hosting is a fuzzy term, as we've already discussed, uh, Netlify has grown to encompass more than that definition. How would you describe Netlify today? 
Yeah, so apologies. I started talking a little bit about Netlify before we'd really uh, we'd really introduced it. But yeah, you're quite right. Its its background does come from static hosting. It was it kind of grew out of a, a company uh, called uh, Bitballoon, which was doing exactly that. It was just purely kind of give us your directory and we'll get it to a CDN. It was just reducing the friction in deploying it, and that's that's largely where it stopped. But then when it grew into Netlify and we started to add more capabilities in there, I think the best way to describe what we are. Uh, what we are now is a, a set of modern tools for web developers to get their sites deployed as rapidly as possible onto a global CDN. And then we include build automation and other tooling associated with that. So the kind of things that we'll do is we'll say, okay, you want to create a new site, tell us the Git repository where your your code for that is is housed. And then we'll we'll set up some some Git hooks with that repository. And every time you push code to that repo, we'll spot that's happened. We'll pull your your code. We'll run your build. So we'll run it in our own internal, in a container, in a like a CI container, and we'll perform that build for you. And then the output of that build will propagate to a global CDN on your behalf and we'll handle everything like the cache headers and the cache expiration and all, all of the kind of stuff that is is frankly painful and, and very easy to get wrong that's we're trying to commoditize that and say you know you shouldn't need to worry about that we'll do that for you so that's that's the kind of the very basis of what we do but then on top of that we also add some some other kind of tooling so i i already mentioned that these deploys are like immutable and atomic so in other words you know, whenever we do a new deploy it's not a mutation of what's there already we're not updating some files and some assets of a deploy we're creating an entirely new instance of your site and then we propagate that to the cdn globally and once everything is in place then we flip it over and, and the traffic starts immediately going to that and that allow us allows us to do things like these rollbacks from any, from one version to any other you can step back anywhere in history those kind of things so that's that's kind of nice but then there's a few other like obvious tools that we'd add to that to start to you know raise the ceiling of what you can do with a site which is hosted like statically on a CDN so for instance an obvious barrier that you you would run into when building a site like this is well i i want everything is basically a static view but i need a form on there i need to be able to just allow someone to you know register or give me their details just submit some data do what i need somewhere to post to course there's no server running in here because we've tried to take the origin out of this we're trying to take the servers out of the equation so what netlify do is instead of giving you a server where you can write your your form handlers what we'll do is as we run your build if we see in your html that there's a form element and if you've decorated it with a, a netlify attribute we'll say okay we'll look at the form see what form fields are in there and we'll create for you on the fly an api that that will post to for you automatically so that's that's not adding like a another third party or a javascript dependency that's just purely giving you a form handler so now that's that html has somewhere that it will post data to and then you can access that data either through the admin ui or we give you an api we give you an api effectively for everything so then you can get that data back and either use it in another build or you can notify other things and those kind of things so that's kind of an obvious kind of next step that we'd add as tooling and there's a there's a bunch of other things like um we'll do uh, branch builds for you so i don't know if you've ever ever kind of lived through the pain of working on a big project where you've had to create a production environment a staging environment a dev environment a testing environment all all manner of environments which are meant to be kind of perfect facsimiles of each other so you have confidence as you you know build your site out and progress 
it can be quite painful in creating all that infrastructure. The way that we do it is that we just treat every every bit of infrastructure just exactly the same. Everything is effectively production infrastructure. This kind of thing that we're trying to commoditize and let you build on top of. So if you decide that, well, you know, I, I want to be able to have a staged version of my site as well as the production one, you do that using Git conventions that exist already. So you'll create a branch and you whatever you name that branch will create an instance of your site with that name you know, prefixed in the URL as well for you. So it means that you you create a dev branch, you push that. We'll also build that and we'll propagate that to, you know, dev.yoursite.netlify.com, uh, what have you. So it means that you can start to create these these different environments that are all based on on branches and the kind of Git infrastructure and workflows that developers are already, already kind of uh, used to. Key is that these things are all kind of as production and they're all on the same... Uh, global CDN. So there's no loss in performance between them. They're really kind of indicative of what the experience is truly going to be. So that's that's kind of quite empowering. I'll give you another word in a second. I'm sorry, I'm kind of rambling, but uh, this kind of leads me straight on to the next thing, which is, you know, once you've got branch deploys where you can serve different versions from different branches of your site, you know, at the same level on the CDN, we can start to add things like A-B testing to that. Now, A-B testing is one of those things which is often seen to be very powerful, but quite hard to do very very well you know lots of popular approaches to this will maybe use javascript to let you serve different versions of your site so maybe kind of a small iteration to either some language or some ui and that's often done with javascript difficulty there of course is that we know that performance has a huge impact on experience so if we're you know serving two versions of the site where the you know the performance is impacted by needing to call another javascript api somewhere else to change the ui in the first place that that can have an impact we're in a nice position where since we're able to serve all of your sites from all of the versions of your sites on their different branches directly from the cdn we can start to run a b tests directly from the cdn as well so we'll say okay we'll set up a test that runs comparing you know splits half of the traffic to go to the master branch and then half to you know my new purchase button branch and that traffic switching happens at the cdn level so both experiences are being served to the the end user exactly as they would be in production there's no there's nothing standing between those so that's that can be really powerful in terms of a way to do things like a b testing it ends up being really trivial to set that up and i've lived through much more complex um setups in different types of environment where actually creating full a b tests can be can be quite difficult those are just a few things the a b testing elements pretty interesting because there are all these a b testing systems that really do penalize you on performance but if you have different versions of your site getting built at build time like you said you have this build system where i just put in a github repo and the github repo gets pulled onto a container and gets built on that container and then served to a cdn well if you built multiple versions of the site right there then it's like each of those versions of the site, when it actually gets served to the user, you don't have any latency from the A-B testing framework doing some switching statement based off of, you know, what this person's geo is or who they are. I guess you might, you know, you could have that that work being pushed to the CDN, like maybe if you wanted to be doing an A-B test that was switching on the user's gender, for example, then you could have the CDN do the, do the switching right there. 
I guess so, yeah. I mean, it, you need to be able to detect and then choose to root from one thing to the other. So deciding how how you capture the gender, you could certainly do that. I mean, so for instance, we um, the CDNs that edge nodes that that serve um, serve the sites, we've built some logic in there as well to do things like uh, detect uh, your your language settings or your locale. So things like localization that also becomes something that you can do in a in a pre-rendered fashion as well. So, you know, a, a static site generator that builds out a version of your site for uh, all of the languages you want to support, those are all then pushed out to the CDN. And then we're just routing to different different paths in the site at the CDN level. Again, kind of switching content for you in that way. It sounds like it's the kind of thing that would be potentially quite complex to do elsewise but just having that little bit of logic at the cdn level that we just give you access to just so that you can route things in different places uh, that turns out to be just just really quite powerful i have spent a lot of time using firebase i like firebase a lot Mm. what's nice about firebase is it simplifies working with large you know data sets and heavy database related applications as well as these lighter weight static site based applications now that's not to say these things are mutually exclusive but mm-hmm. do you see potential for building products within netlify that allow for more data rich applications yes totally and that's a really good example actually mentioning firebase that's a really good example because i know a lot of people build uh, static sites that are hosted on firebase and then sorry hosted on netlify and then some of the routes take you to views that are that are fulfilled by either firebase or something that queries firebase in the background we mentioned serverless functions a little bit earlier on and one of the things that certainly you can do with the serverless function is you can be you can be hitting a data source and then fulfilling a template and then returning that or indeed creating apis that you that you're serving from something like firebase or or something something along those lines that is an API that you consume from a static site where, wherever that's hosted, whether that's you know, Netify or Firebase or Dropbox or GitHub Pages or, or where have you. At Netlify, we're, we don't think we're going to get into the game of, of um, giving you a database within our environment ourselves, but we're very keen on making it as simple as possible for you to access database services wherever else they might exist. We know that Different, different people have different tastes and different constraints about what they can and can't use. So really trying to, trying to create this kind of glue layer that allows you to build out sites that can make use of database services through suitable APIs wherever they may be. We think that's really powerful and we think that's quite robust. I think it's, it's one of those things where this sensible abstraction of some of the services means that you can you can weather the storm if one of these services goes away and you need go, need to use one thing instead of another rather than putting all of your eggs in one basket so we think this kind of abstraction is really is really powerful and and certainly i think sites that are built on the jamstack can leverage apis and leverage uh, data services wherever they they may live i've done a lot of web app deployments on heroku also i'm, mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of heroku yeah Heroku, I think, was somewhere in between the cloud server full world and the serverless, if you want to call it a revolution, but shift. Mm. 
because Heroku really did simplify a lot of the the deployment issues that people had, but you still have this server that you get up and running, and it's still in that that kind of paradigm. And so it's I think the costs are you know can be a little more pricey with Heroku as as much as I love it. There's also Gatsby. So Gatsby is I'm just thinking of other other um, things that are kind of in this space. So Gatsby we did a show with that I believe is an open source static site generator yes and they're building i believe a business around that or maybe they already launched a business how does netlify compare to gatsby yeah as you say gatsby is a a static site generator so it's a it's a tool that will take templates and markup and content effectively run run a build and then generate a deployable site. One of the things that Gatsby does really nicely is that they'll they have a build which is reasonably opinionated in the way that it delivers your your site, your front end. So they bundle in lots of really nice optimizations and create almost like a progressive web app so that you know you can have things like service workers implemented for you automatically and give you things like offline access what have you so you can do you know very performant rendering and also be able to withstand the server the connection to the network rather than kind of going away while you're on the site so that's that's really good but that's um they don't provide hosting so they are a build tool that you can use you know, locally or on some kind of continuous integration server or indeed within Netlify to take your your code and generate a site that you can then you can then host somewhere another thing that they do really nicely is that they are starting to explore interesting ways to expose the data so you know when we're talking about the the content apis that might might drive a site so that you know you're pulling content from something like a headless cms or whatever content sources at build time they've built uh, a lot on top of GraphQL to give you quite a nice, uh, rich way of querying the different data structures that exist in the kind of the API ecosystem that you live in, so that you can you can have very rich uh, access to this content while you compile compile your template. So that that's rather nice. But again, this is something that you you run at build time, and then the output of, is something that you that you then host, which is where. So we work very closely with. Um, or rather, we serve a lot of sites that are built uh, using using Gatsby, and if, there are a few services like that that kind of seem to seem to be very very popular at the moment. Kind of capture the capture the zeitgeist, and Gatsby certainly is is one of those. How do you see GraphQL fitting into the Jamstack in the near future? I think it's incredibly valuable. I think it's it's a very interesting prospect because, again, kind of going back to my slight web hippie days. I'm just a huge fan of REST and RESTful services. I think that's that's really powerful fundamentals of the web. But of course, this kind of slightly disrupts that a little bit, and is a different way of you know querying APIs and interacting with 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 APIs. But I think the flexibility that it brings and the the efficiency that it brings can be really empowering. You know, I've I've certainly built out and kind of helped to architect um, applications in the past that had this very nice delineation between the API layer and the, the UI layer and you know designing the UI layer to be able to get the data it needed from the API that again would be designed and implemented along the way to give you just the right calls to you know, populate your site and do the mutations and what have you. That is quite prescriptive. You know, you need to be able to design those things in concert. With GraphQL, it gives you much greater freedom to be able to say, 
you know what, these are the data structures that I that I need in my UI. And as long as the the underlying data is going to be accessible through this through this GraphQL API layer, I can shape the request any way I like to be able to give me just the data I need just in a single request. And I think that's great for things like performance and maintainability of the UI and the robustness of the API layer. So I think I think it's a it's a natural fit for the Jamstack and I think it will get more and more popular. The one thing I would say, um, and this is just a, a standard word of caution, I've seen lots of sites using uh, GraphQL that didn't need to just because you know they're actually way simpler than that and it could have been done at a much simpler level and so sometimes it can add complexity sooner than it needs to but i think that's just that's just the you know the kind of technology siren that exists for all of us building stuff on the web we like lightning seeing new things we like ex- like exploring the new ways of building things and that's just kind of the natural temptation certainly uh, graphql is incredibly powerful incredibly liberating for lots of things that we might build that are more complex but i wouldn't necessarily rush to to use it on on everything that's going to do a request to a to a, a feed or something like that we've done a pretty good job of exploring the trends of serverless and Jamstack here, I think. And for people who haven't really tried to build apps in this way, I I personally recommend it. I find it really fun and lightweight and frankly easier. Like I, I came out of college and was working on these big old legacy Java applications and it's just less fast and less fun to, to get stuff to production uh, and I just, I, do, I will never go back to that world, thankfully. And I think the cost is actually lower. You get an easy, generally an easier app to deal with, and the cost is lower because just the trends in cloud computing and the way that these services get stitched together uh, really amortizes your costs, or it amortizes each of these different services that you're using. They're, they are amortized. They have they have economies of scale, and so things just seem overall cheaper. Is that your sense as well? Like, just app development is much cheaper than it used to be? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, this kind of trend and this kind of shift towards a, like a Jamstack model, one of the key things it's doing is it's, it's taking whole chunks of complexity out of your architecture you know the architecture that you have to be responsible for but also the architecture that's that's in play if we take away servers that need to respond to every request that come in comes in perform some logic hit a database which needs to exist somewhere as well maybe go through load balances go through you know all of the kind of redundancy planning on all of those kind of things you know if you take a lot of that away and just say you know what we're serving this directly from the cdn you know that you're removing a lot of moving parts and you're you're removing a lot of need for things like redundancy and all of those those kind of things you're building on top of some of the things that are commoditized and then starting to use services where you know their business is purely in building uh, and providing services in a timely and performant way so you know they themselves have economies of scale so so i totally agree that it's it's lowering the barrier to entry to building some of these things and it's certainly lowering the cost and another place that you know the cost can be reduced that is is less less obvious is in the skills that you need to build some of these things you know the the breadth of expertise that you need in a team to build some of these very complex you know enterprise grade which is a term i'm 
sorry, I didn't mean to use that term, but it's often one that you hear. This kind of very high-performance grade application, you, you don't need the same diversities of skills that you may have needed in the past because you know you're outsourcing the need to be to be you know a devops expert or you know a caching expert or you know all of these different things that you would normally have to take care of yourself your team now can focus on you know client-side technologies you know front-end development technologies api design uh, and it's a much smaller set of skills that you need to to have on the team, but you're kind of leveraging the skills of of other people that are kind of in in other places. So yes, it's it's faster, it's cheaper, and I agree, it's it's just more fun. I feel more productive than I've than I've ever felt before. It's nice. Are there any other developer trends that you expect to see in the near future that we haven't covered? That's a million dollar question. I mean, from my position of someone who kind of looks a lot at things like frameworks and static site generators, they move so fast and there's so many, so many out there. I do watch quite closely which frameworks seem to be getting popular uh, and which static site generators are getting popular. And I think things like Vue.js are particularly interesting at the moment, which is another JavaScript framework, which can be used as a static site generator or it can do do server render as well. I think that's getting a lot of momentum at the moment and it's it's starting to kind of uh, compete a little bit with things like React in terms of you know how people are using it and its popularity. But I don't that's not looking very far ahead. I think that's already that's already gaining in popularity right now. I know that we'll be surprised. <laughs> I think the browser capabilities are getting more and more interesting and and more and more rich and we're starting to see people use things in in more and more interesting ways. So I don't really know what's around the corner. Um it usually surprises me. Phil Hawksworth, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking. Thanks Jeff. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. Wow.